The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. A great show today. I am so excited. Last time we touched base, it was before Christmas. I hope you and your friends and loved ones had a happy holiday if you celebrate. And if not, I assume you're, like the rest of us, looking forward to 2019. Let's hope it's a good year, full of happiness and peace on Earth and plenty of time to read. We've got a great story for you today, The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. A classic story a canonical work, a kind of feminist version of an Edgar Allan Poe story. It's an amazing short story, a really fun one, but also ahead of its time in its feminist themes and keen psychological insight. It's a total condemnation of a particular kind of 19th century medicine, the rest cure, in which women were told to lie down and not work and not write and not get excited that their nervous disposition was troubling them, and that they should sleep and stop getting all caught up in their thoughts. Kind of reminds me a little of our old friend Radha Vatsal and her excellent historical mysteries set in the 19-teens and 20s when women would go to school and the headmasters and other men in charge would say, hey, don't take too many intellectual classes. Your womanly brains are overly excitable. We don't want you to think too much. You'll be exhausted. Well, you can see where that takes you. A woman says, hey, wait, I don't think I'm getting better here. In fact, I think having company and talking and reading and writing and stimulating conversation would help, not hinder. But if everyone around her, the people who love her best, say, no, 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 no. Quite the opposite. We want you in bed. We've moved heaven and earth so that you can be free to rest and get better. Well, what is such a patient to do? The patient sees her support network, her closest loved ones, acting in a spirit of generosity and good intentions. So maybe they are right, but it doesn't feel right. This is the dilemma faced by the narrator of The Yellow Wallpaper. And if you haven't heard this story before, you are in for a treat. Even if you have, I think you'll enjoy this episode. We have the great Evie Lee here to join us, fresh off her successful elevation at the Literature Supporters Club, she has joined some other fellow luminaries as a vice president of our favorite illustrious club. Speaking of which, we often have the president, of course, Mike Palindrome here. He's working away on his solo episodes, which I should be able to post very soon. I know I've said that before. I've been saying that for weeks, but this time is different. He has sent me the audio. I need only to clean it up a bit and get it ready for public consumption. That will be our New Year's treat for you, dear listeners. But today, we have a treat of another sort. Charlotte Perkins Gilman, Evie Lee, and the Yellow Wallpaper. After this.
Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Charlotte Perkins Gilman was born in 1860 in Hartford, Connecticut. When she was an infant, her father moved out abandoning the family, which included the baby Charlotte and her older brother, who was himself only a toddler. Her mother struggled financially after that, and they were assisted by her father's relatives, a trio of his aunts, who evidently had sympathy and took pity on the struggling young family that their nephew had abandoned. This trio of aunts were formidable women. Isabella Beecher Hooker was a strong advocate of the woman's right to vote, Catherine Beecher was a well-known advocate for the education of women and the importance of mandatory kindergarten, and Harriet Beecher Stowe was famous as the author of the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin. The little woman, in the phrase attributed to Abraham Lincoln, who wrote the book that started this great war. In spite of the role of these remarkable women, Charlotte had a rocky childhood with an erratic education, bouncing from school to school as her mother struggled in poverty and the aftershock of abandonment. Her mother was reeling from the pain of being left behind her husband, and she wanted desperately to make sure that her children never felt such pain. With that in mind, she discouraged them from having strong friendships or developing attachments to others. Charlotte later recalled that when she was a child, her mother would withhold her affection until nighttime, when she thought Charlotte was asleep. While this was done in the spirit of protecting her children from pain— the effect was need and confusion, and for Charlotte, it fed into a sense of longing for company and the stimulation of ideas. She was a gifted student when she was given the chance. She snuck away to the library and read, even though her mother forbade her from reading fiction because of the strong feelings it might provoke, which, as with strong friendships, could lead her into intense disappointment. It was a hard, cold life. But Charlotte kept reading, enjoying books of history and books about ancient civilizations. And later, her father came back in touch with her, rejoined her life a bit, and it turned out that he too loved literature, and he gave her a list of books that he thought she should read. Gilman got married at age 24 and had a child a year later, but this too was difficult. She suffered from postpartum depression, which the medical world had a terrible understanding of. Women who suffered from it were seen as hysterical and nervous, and their claims were often not taken seriously. Five years later, Gilman wrote the story that we know her for today. 
the yellow wallpaper. She wrote it in two days. It's often viewed as a response to the doctor who prescribed the rest cure for her as a means of treating her depression. And in fact, there's good reason to view it that way as a response to the doctor. The doctor's name appears in the story, and she sent him a copy. Her hope was that she would persuade him and other physicians to rethink the idea of a rest cure and instead listen to the women who were suffering and to look for ways to energize them and allow them to have the stimuli they requested, books and writing and company and ideas. The rest cure, Gilman thought, led to a kind of downward spiral. The reception of the story was mixed. Famously, the Atlantic Monthly editor turned it down with the editor saying that he could not forgive himself if he made others as miserable as he himself was made when he read the story. It's interesting to note in that context that no one seemed to have objected to Edgar Allan Poe's stories, which one might say the same thing about. It begs the question of whether what was so troubling was not the madness, but the persuasiveness that the cause of it was the patriarchal attitudes toward the narrator. Even men who thought they were being kind and scientific by adopting the prevailing views of women as weak and inferior and hysterical and nervous were contributing to a kind of oppression of women that bordered on imprisonment. That was the message of the yellow wallpaper, and it seems that the editor of the Atlantic Monthly, for one, could not bear to hear the news. The story today is widely read, one of the most famous short stories in the world. It's listed on syllabi and included in anthologies as a central text in both 19th century American fiction and feminist literature. Gilman published several other works, including collections of poetry, 186 short stories, something like nine novels, as well as plays, nonfiction, and her diaries. With a handful of exceptions, these are not widely read today. It is the yellow wallpaper that has stuck, the yellow wallpaper that we peel away, the yellow wallpaper that we inhabit and emerge from. Let's take a quick break, then return with our guest, Evie Lee. Okay, joining me now is a new guest. I'm very excited to welcome to the podcast a vice president of the Literature Supporters Club, Evie Lee. Welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Hello, Jack. Thank you so much for having me. So we are headed toward a new year, Evie. What are you excited about reading next year? Do you have anything interesting on your list? Yes, I am. Uh, I have a number of books on my list, but... I'm very much aware that this is the History of Literature podcast, <laughs> so I will try not to. So that must mean a lot. That must mean you're reading a lot of contemporary literature in 2019. Yes, I have a lot of contemporary literature on my to-do list. I do have one historical book. Okay. Uh, that I'm looking forward to reading. I haven't read it yet, but I've heard a lot about it, and I heard it's pretty great. Um, and in part, I think it will lead us to our discussion today. But before we get to that, let me note my three fiction books on my list. Okay. okay. Yep. So 
first is An American Marriage by Tahari Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't read it, so I can't talk about it, but I know it's been a lot on people's best list, so I'm looking forward to that. Yep. Also, Cirque by Madeline Miller. That's uh, another book that a lot of people have uh, raved about. It okay. came out last year. And finally, before I talk about the historical book, I today, and this is actually a historical book as well, read the first chapter of Mary Poppins oh, by T.L. Right. Travers. <laughs> How was it? You know, it was it was interesting. Yeah, uh, I read it with my uh, son because he got it for Christmas at a Christmas book exchange, and uh, we <laughs> read it together. Yeah. So we're we're reading alternate pages. Right. And I guess I will say, after about half the first chapter, I I had to take a nap, but I'm I'm really excited <laughs> for it. Okay, good. And there's that new movie out. Exactly. So he got the original Mary Poppins and then Mary Poppins Returns. So mm. you know, maybe over the next three or four years, we'll get them both read. Right. Um, so, but yeah. So uh, along with more adult themes, I have on my list The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Oh, right. Yeah. I hear it's a it's a it's one of the best horror stories. Yeah. And well, well, and we should probably do an episode on the lottery. Yes, I have read the lottery and that is a really excellent short story. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a good one. Um, yeah. Okay, and looking back to 2018, is there anything that you would highlight for us as being particularly noteworthy? Yes, 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 yes. So there are two books uh, that I wanted to talk about. I read a number of books last year, but one book, and then we'll talk about a book of short stories that I read. The first book that I read that I'd like you know your readers to consider reading if they take a break from historical fiction is less by Andrew Sean Greer. Okay. I think it's Greer. It is is excellent. It's it's an amazing book. You will want to go back and reread it. And I don't want to spoil it, but uh you know, it's a book that you know, I'm not sure there is a corollary in historical fiction because it is about a uh LGBT Hmm. the LGBT community mm-hmm. and and in the sense that it's a love story, but it's not heavy handed and it's beautifully written. It actually won the Pulitzer. So I, I, I yep. think people should consider it if you want to take a break. Contemporary the classic. Other, yes, 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 yes. Uh, the other book I would recommend is Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado. Mm-hmm. I believe that's how you pronounce her last name. Yeah, uh, it is. It is a book of short stories, and this is actually what led me to suggesting we uh, talk about the book that we're going to talk about today. Mm. Uh, I was reading. Yes, I was reading it. It was powerful. It's the type of book that you immediately or I immediately wanted to talk to someone about yeah, because it was giving all sorts of thoughts. Right. Well, I have not, I have not read it, but it certainly created a huge uh, splash this past year. I think I read, you know, several articles about it and reviews about it. I'm aware of the 
um, the buzz around this book. It sounds like it's amazing, and it sounds like just what you said. People who read it want to talk to somebody about it. It's sort of mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. And so um, I will just note that because I wanted to talk to people about it, and I was unable to find anyone who had read it, I did two things. One, I had a gift exchange with friends and I gave a friend the book. (laughs) Good idea. (laughs) But thank you. And the other thing is I Googled it. I Mm. Googled it. And, and one of the stories in the book, the resident, it's a short story. uh, There came up a discussion about how the resident was similar to the yellow wallpaper. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. And that kind of takes us into uh, the yellow wallpaper we're going to be talking about today. You and I have been talking for a while about uh, you coming Mm -hmm. on as a guest, and we've talked about some different ideas for what we should base the episode around. And then the other day, you mentioned the yellow wallpaper, and I said, yes, this has been on my list of episodes that I've wanted to do for quite a while. We get a lot of requests for this. And so I was wondering what had, had triggered that and put that in your mind uh, at this time. And so it's it's interesting to hear there was a connection to the Machado collection. Does she refer to it or this is just something that other people uh, did sort of a comparison online that is what put this short story in mind for you? It's the latter. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did not refer to it. Uh, someone else put it, you know, did an analysis of it. And I think they're pretty spot on. And it actually caused me to want to go back and reread the the resident again. And, and, and there are, uh, there are some overlapping themes between the two materials. Mm. Did they, I'm interested in the way that they talked about the yellow wallpaper online. Did they, is it, I mean, it seems to me that it's viewed as such a canonical work, such a groundbreaking story, almost revered for what uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman was able to do at the time that she was writing and how forward looking it is and how it it really sets up a lot of themes that we still wrestle with today. But it it seems to do so. uh, It seems like 50 years ahead of its time. Absolutely. I agree. And so the way they talk about it, like uh, at least the person whose article I read, the way she talks about it is in the sense of uh, the yellow wallpaper being an inspiration for the resident. Mm. I think that, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think for the most part, when you have stories and fiction at such a high level as the yellow wallpaper, it's hard to to think of it as any other way except for inspiring the next generation. Right. Because, you know, the Machado was able to build upon the yellow wallpaper mm-hmm. to use it possibly as their base. I'm not sure if she actually had it in mind, but. Yeah. Uh, well, even, and we can maybe save this until, so this is another self-contained episode of the podcast where we're going to listen to the story here and maybe we should save this for after the break. But one of the things that, I want to talk about is even if Machado hasn't, I'm, my guess is she has read the yellow wallpaper, even if she wasn't consciously basing the story on it, it was maybe somewhere in her mind. But even if she hadn't, those themes and those ideas have become so absorbed and we find them in so many other places in our popular culture that 
you could see where the themes from the yellow wallpaper would make their way into someone's fiction, even if that person had never actually read the story. Yeah. Very fair. So is there anything we should say before we listen to the story? Anything you'd like the listener to keep in mind when listening to the story? Yes. Okay. I would like to recommend that the listeners trust the narrator. Mm. Mm -hmm. He will take you on a grand journey. Be malleable. Mm -hmm. Have faith in the narrator. Yes. And then finally, I would just note that don't feel pressure to go back and rewind to chase breadcrumbs. I think after uh, Jack reads the story, after we talk about it today, you're absolutely going to want to go and find it and read it for yourself if you haven't already. Mm. You can do that then. Right. Okay, sounds good. So let's take a quick break, and we will come back with the Charlotte Perkins Gilman story, The Yellow Wallpaper, and then... Uh, you and I will be back with some thoughts about the story. The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman It is very seldom that mere ordinary people like John and myself secure ancestral halls for the summer. A colonial mansion... A hereditary estate, I would say, a haunted house, and reach the height of romantic felicity. But that would be asking too much of fate. Still, I will proudly declare that there is something queer about it. Else, why should it be let so cheaply? And why have stood so long untenanted? John laughs at me, of course, but one expects that in marriage. John is practical in the extreme. He has no patience with faith an intense horror of superstition, and he scoffs openly at any talk of things not to be felt and seen and put down in figures. John is a physician, and perhaps, I would not say it to a living soul, of course, but this is dead paper and a great relief to my mind. Perhaps that is one reason I do not get well faster. You see, he does not believe I am sick. And what can one do? If a physician of high standing and one's own husband assures friends and relatives that there is really nothing the matter with one but temporary nervous depression, a slight hysterical tendency. What is one to do? My brother is also a physician, and also of high standing, and he says the same thing. So I take phosphates, or phosphites, whichever it is, and tonics, and journeys, and air, and exercise, and am absolutely forbidden to work until I am well again. Personally, I disagree with their ideas. Personally, I believe that congenial work with excitement and change would do me good. But what is one to do? I did write for a while in spite of them, but it does exhaust me a good deal, having to be so sly about it or else meet with heavy opposition. I sometimes fancy that in my condition, if I had less opposition and more society and stimulus. But John says the very worst thing I can do is to think about my condition. And I confess, it always makes me feel bad. So I will let it alone and talk about the house. The most beautiful place. It is quite alone, standing well back from the road, quite three miles from the village. 
It makes me think of English places that you read about, for there are hedges and walls and gates that lock, and lots of separate little houses for the gardeners and people. There is a delicious garden. I never saw such a garden, large and shady, full of box-bordered paths and lined with long, grape-covered arbors with seats under them. There were greenhouses, too, but they are all broken now. There was some legal trouble, I believe, something about the heirs and co-heirs. Anyhow, the place has been empty for years. That spoils my ghostliness, I am afraid, but I don't care. There is something strange about the house. I can feel it. I even said so to John one moonlit evening, but he said what I felt was a draft and shut the window. I get unreasonably angry with John sometimes. I'm sure I never used to be so sensitive. I think it is due to this nervous condition. But John says, if I feel so, I shall neglect proper self-control, so I take pains to control myself, before him at least, and that makes me very tired. I don't like our room a bit. I wanted one downstairs that opened on the piazza and had roses all over the window and such pretty, old-fashioned chintz hangings. But John would not hear of it. He said there was only one window and not room for two beds and no near room for him if he took another. He is very careful and loving and hardly lets me stir without special direction. I have a scheduled prescription for each hour in the day. He takes all care from me, and so I feel basely ungrateful not to value it more. He said, We came here solely on my account, that I was to have perfect rest and all the air I could get. Your exercise depends on your strength, my dear, said he, and your food somewhat on your appetite, but air you can absorb all the time. So we took the nursery at the top of the house. It is a big, airy room, the whole floor nearly, with windows that look all ways, and air and sunshine galore. It was nursery first, and then playground, and gymnasium, I should judge, for the windows are barred for little children, and there are rings and things in the walls. The paint and paper look as if a boy's school had used it. It is stripped off, the paper, in great patches all around the head of my bed, about as far as I can reach, and in a great place on the other side of the room low down. I never saw a worse paper in my life. One of those sprawling, flamboyant patterns committing every artistic sin. It is dull enough to confuse the eye in following, pronounced enough to constantly irritate and provoke study. And when you follow the lame, uncertain curves for a little distance, they suddenly commit suicide, plunge off at outrageous angles, destroy themselves in unheard-of contradictions. The color is repellent, almost revolting, a smoldering, unclean yellow, strangely faded by the slow-turning sunlight. It is a dull yet lurid orange in some places, a sickly sulfur tint in others. No wonder the children hated it. I should hate it myself if I had to live in this room long. There comes John, and I must put this away. He hates to have me write a word. We have been here two weeks, and I haven't felt like writing before since that first day. I am sitting by the window now, up in this atrocious nursery, and there is nothing to hinder my writing as much as I please, save lack of strength. 
John is away all day, and even some nights when his cases are serious. I am glad my case is not serious. But these nervous troubles are dreadfully depressing. John does not know how much I really suffer. He knows there is no reason to suffer, and that satisfies him. Of course, it is only nervousness. It does weigh on me so not to do my duty in any way. I meant to be such a help to John, such a real rest and comfort, and here I am, a comparative burden already. Nobody would believe what an effort it is to do what little I am able to dress and entertain and order things. It is fortunate Mary is so good with the baby, such a dear baby, and yet I cannot be with him. It makes me so nervous. I suppose John never was nervous in his life. He laughs at me so about this wallpaper. At first, he meant to repaper the room, but afterwards he said that I was letting it get the better of me, and that nothing was worse for a nervous patient than to give way to such fancies. He said that after the wallpaper was changed, it would be the heavy bedstead, and then the barred windows, and then that gate at the head of the stairs, and so on. You know the place is doing you good, he said, and really, dear, I don't care to renovate the house just for a three months rental. Then do let us go downstairs, I said. There are such pretty rooms there. Then he took me in his arms and called me a blessed little goose and said he would go down cellar if I wished and have it whitewashed into the bargain. But he is right enough about the beds and windows and things. It is as airy and comfortable a room as anyone need wish. And, of course, I would not be so silly as to make him uncomfortable just for a whim. I'm really getting quite fond of the big room, all but that horrid paper. Out of one window I can see the garden, those mysterious deep-shaded arbors, the riotous old-fashioned flowers, and bushes and gnarly trees. Out of another I get a lovely view of the bay and a little private wharf belonging to the estate. There is a beautiful shaded lane that runs down there from the house. I always fancy I see people walking in these numerous paths and arbors, but John has cautioned me not to give way to fancy in the least. He says that with my imaginative power and habit of story-making, a nervous weakness like mine is sure to lead to all manner of excited fancies, and that I ought to use my will and good sense to check the tendency. So I try. I think sometimes that if I were only well enough to write a little, it would relieve the press of ideas and rest me. But I find I get pretty tired when I try. It is so discouraging not to have any advice and companionship about my work. When I get really well, John says we will ask Cousin Henry and Julia down for a long visit. But he says he would as soon put fireworks in my pillowcase as to let me have those stimulating people about now. I wish I could get well faster. But I must not think about that. This paper looks to me as if it knew what a vicious influence it had. There is a recurrent spot where the pattern lolls like a broken neck and two bulbous eyes stare at you upside down. I get positively angry with the impertinence of it and the everlastingness. Up and down and sideways they crawl, and those absurd, unblinking eyes are everywhere. There's one place where two breaths didn't match, and the eyes go all up and down the line, one a little higher than the other. 
I never saw so much expression in an inanimate thing before, and we all know how much expression they have. I used to lie awake as a child and get more entertainment and terror out of blank walls and plain furniture than most children could find in a toy store. I remember what a kindly wink the knobs of our big old bureau used to have, and there was one chair that always seemed like a strong friend. I used to feel that if any of the other things looked too fierce, I could always hop into that chair and be safe. The furniture in this room is no worse than inharmonious, however, for we had to bring it all from downstairs. I suppose when this was used as a playroom, they had to take the nursery things out, and no wonder. I never saw such ravages as the children have made here. The wallpaper as I said before, is torn off in spots, and it sticketh closer than a brother. They must have had perseverance as well as hatred. Then the floor is scratched and gouged and splintered. The plaster itself is dug out here and there, and this great heavy bed, which is all we found in the room, looks as if it had been through the wars. But I don't mind it a bit. Only the paper." There comes John's sister, such a dear girl as she is, and so careful of me. I must not let her find me writing. She is a perfect and enthusiastic housekeeper, and hopes for no better profession. I verily believe she thinks it is the writing which made me sick. But I can write when she is out, and see her a long way off from these windows. There is one that commands the road, a lovely, shaded, winding road, and one that just looks off over the country. A lovely country, too, full of great elms and velvet meadows. This wallpaper has a kind of sub-pattern in a different shade, a particularly irritating one, for you can only see it in certain lights, and not clearly then. But in the places where it isn't faded, and where the sun is just so, I can see a strange, provoking, formless sort of figure that seems to sulk about behind that silly and conspicuous front design. Their sister on the stairs. Well, the 4th of July is over. The people are gone and I am tired out. John thought it might do me good to see a little company, so we just had Mother and Nellie and the children down for a week. Of course, I didn't do a thing. Jenny sees to everything now but it tired me all the same. John says, if I don't pick up faster, he shall send me to Weir Mitchell in the fall. But I don't want to go there at all. I had a friend who was in his hands once, and she says he is just like John and my brother, only more so. Besides, it is such an undertaking to go so far. I don't feel as if it was worthwhile to turn my hand over for anything, and I'm getting dreadfully fretful and querulous. I cry at nothing and cry most of the time. Of course, I don't when John is here, or anybody else, but when I am alone. And I am alone a good deal just now. John is kept in town very often by serious cases, and Jenny is good and lets me alone when I want her to. So I walk a little in the garden or down that lovely lane, sit on the porch under the roses, and lie down up here a good deal. I'm getting really fond of the room, in spite of the wallpaper. Perhaps because of the wallpaper. It dwells in my mind so. I lie here on this great, immovable bed, 
It is nailed down, I believe, and follow that pattern about by the hour. It is as good as gymnastics, I assure you. I start, we'll say, at the bottom, down in the corner over there where it has not been touched, and I determine for the thousandth time that I will follow that pointless pattern to some sort of a conclusion. I know a little of the principle of design, and I know this thing was not arranged on any laws of radiation or alternation or repetition or symmetry or anything else that I ever heard of. It is repeated, of course, by the breaths, but not otherwise. Looked at in one way, each breath stands alone, the bloated curves and flourishes, a kind of debased Romanesque with delirium tremens, go waddling up and down in isolated columns of fatuity. But, on the other hand, they connect diagonally, and the sprawling outlines run off in great slanting waves of optic horror, like a lot of wallowing seaweeds in full chase. The whole thing goes horizontally, too, at least it seems so, and I exhaust myself in trying to distinguish the order of its going in that direction. They have used a horizontal breadth for a freeze, and that adds wonderfully to the confusion. There is one end of the room where it is almost intact, and there, where the cross lights fade and the low sun shines directly upon it, I can almost fancy radiation after all. The interminable grotesques seem to form around a common center and rush off in headlong plunges of equal distraction. It makes me tired to follow it. I will take a nap, I guess. I don't know why I should write this. I don't want to. I don't feel able. And I know John would think it absurd, but I must say what I feel and think in some way. It is such a relief. But the effort is getting to be greater than the relief. Half the time now I am awfully lazy and lie down ever so much. John says I mustn't lose my strength, and has me take cod liver oil and lots of tonics and things to say nothing of ale and wine and rare meat. Dear John, he loves me very dearly and hates to have me sick. I tried to have a real, earnest, reasonable talk with him the other day and tell him how I wish he would let me go and make a visit to Cousin Henry and Julia. But he said I wasn't able to go nor able to stand it after I got there, and I did not make out a very good case for myself, for I was crying before I had finished. It is getting to be a great effort for me to think straight. Just this nervous weakness, I suppose. And dear John gathered me up in his arms, and just carried me upstairs, and laid me on the bed, and sat by me and read to me till it tired my head. He said I was his darling, and his comfort, and all he had, and that I must take care of myself for his sake, and keep well. He says no one but myself can help me out of it, that I must use my will and self-control, and not let any silly fancies run away with me. There's one comfort, the baby is well and happy, and does not have to occupy this nursery with the horrid wallpaper. If we had not used it, that blessed child would have, what a fortunate escape! Why, I wouldn't have a child of mine, an impressionable little thing, live in such a room for worlds. I never thought of it before, but it is lucky that John kept me here after all. I can stand it so much easier than a baby, you see. Of course, I never mention it to them anymore. 
I am too wise, but I keep watch of it all the same. There are things in that paper that nobody knows but me, or ever will. Behind that outside pattern, the dim shapes get clearer every day. It is always the same shape, only very numerous. And it is like a woman stooping down and creeping about behind that pattern. I don't like it a bit. I wonder. I begin to think. I wish John would take me away from here. It is so hard to talk with John about my case because he is so wise and because he loves me so. But I tried it last night. It was moonlight. The moon shines in all around, just as the sun does. I hate to see it sometimes. It creeps so slowly and always comes in by one window or another. John was asleep and I hated to waken him. So I kept still and watched the moonlight on that undulating wallpaper till I felt creepy. The faint figure behind seemed to shake the pattern, just as if she wanted to get out. I got up softly and went to feel and see if the paper did move, and when I came back, John was awake. What is it, little girl? He said. Don't go walking about like that. You'll get cold. I thought it was a good time to talk, so I told him that I really was not gaining here, and that I wished he would take me away. Why, darling, said he, our lease will be up in three weeks, and I can't see how to leave before. The repairs are not done at home, and I cannot possibly leave town just now. Of course, if you were in any danger, I could and would, but you really are better, dear, whether you can see it or not. I am a doctor, dear, and I know. You are gaining flesh and color. Your appetite is better. I feel really much easier about you. I don't weigh a bit more said I, nor as much, and my appetite may be better in the evening when you are here, but it is worse in the morning when you are away. Bless her little heart, said he with a big hug. She shall be as sick as she pleases. But now let's improve the shining hours by going to sleep and talk about it in the morning. And you won't go away? I asked gloomily. Why, How can I, dear? It is only three weeks more, and then we will take a nice little trip of a few days while Jenny is getting the house ready. Really, dear, you are better. Better in body, perhaps. I began and stopped short, for he sat up straight and looked at me with such a stern, reproachful look that I could not say another word. My darling, said he, I beg of you, for my sake and for our child's sake, as well as for your own, that you will never for one instant let that idea enter your mind. There is nothing so dangerous, so fascinating to a temperament like yours. It is a false and foolish fancy. Can you not trust me as a physician when I tell you so? So, of course, I said no more on that score, and we went to sleep before long. He thought I was asleep first, but I wasn't. I lay there for hours trying to decide whether that front pattern and the back pattern really did move together or separately. On a pattern like this, by daylight, there is a lack of sequence, a defiance of law that is a constant irritant to a normal mind. The color is hideous enough and unreliable enough and infuriating enough, but the pattern is torturing. You think you have mastered it, but just as you get well underway and following, it turns a back somersault, and there you are. It slaps you in the face, knocks you down, and tramples upon you. 
it is like a bad dream. The outside pattern is a florid arabesque, reminding one of a fungus. If you can imagine a toadstool in joints, an interminable string of toadstools, budding and sprouting in endless convolutions, why, that is something like it. That is, sometimes. There is one marked peculiarity about this paper, a thing nobody seems to notice but myself, and that is that it changes as the light changes. When the sun shoots in through the east window, I always watch for that first long, straight ray. It changes so quickly that I never can quite believe it. That is why I watch it always. By moonlight, the moon shines in all night when there is a moon. I wouldn't know it was the same paper. At night, in any kind of light, in twilight, candlelight, lamplight, and worst of all, by moonlight, it becomes bars. The outside pattern, I mean, and the woman behind it is as plain as can be. I didn't realize for a long time what the thing was that showed behind that dim sub-pattern. But now I am quite sure it is a woman. By daylight, she is subdued, quiet. I fancy it is the pattern that keeps her so still. It is so puzzling. It keeps me quiet by the hour. I lie down ever so much now. John says it is good for me, and to sleep all I can. Indeed, he started the habit by making me lie down for an hour after each meal. It is a very bad habit, I am convinced, for, you see, I don't sleep. And that cultivates deceit, for I don't tell them I'm awake. Oh no, the fact is, I am getting a little afraid of John. He seems very queer sometimes, and even Jenny has an inexplicable look. It strikes me occasionally, just as a scientific hypothesis, that perhaps it is the paper. I have watched John when he did not know I was looking, and come into the room suddenly on the most innocent of excuses, and I've caught him several times looking at the paper. And Jenny, too. I caught Jenny with her hand on it once. She didn't know I was in the room, and when I asked her in a quiet, a very quiet voice, with the most restrained manner possible, what she was doing with the paper, she turned around as if she had been caught stealing, and looked quite angry, asked me why I should frighten her so. Then she said that the paper stained everything it touched, that she had found yellow smooches on all my clothes and John's, and she wished we would be more careful. Did that not sound innocent? But I know she was studying that pattern, and I am determined that nobody shall find it out but myself. Life is very much more exciting now than it used to be. You see, I have something more to expect, to look forward to, to watch. I really do eat better and am more quiet than I was. John is so pleased to see me improve. He laughed a little the other day and said, I seem to be flourishing in spite of my wallpaper. I turned it off with a laugh. I had no intention of telling him it was because of the wallpaper. He would make fun of me. He might even want to take me away. I don't want to leave now until I have found it out. There is a week more, and I think that will be enough. I'm feeling ever
remember so much better. I don't sleep much at night, for it is so interesting to watch developments. But I sleep a good deal in the daytime. In the daytime, it is tiresome and perplexing. There are always new shoots on the fungus and new shades of yellow all over it. I cannot keep count of them, though I have tried conscientiously. It is the strangest yellow, that wallpaper. It makes me think of all the yellow things I ever saw. Not beautiful ones like buttercups, but old, foul, bad yellow things. But there is something else about that paper. The smell. I noticed it the moment we came into the room, but with so much air and sun, it was not bad. Now, we have had a week of fog and rain, and whether the windows are open or not, the smell is here. It creeps all over the house. I find it hovering in the dining room, skulking in the parlor, hiding in the hall, lying in wait for me on the stairs. It gets into my hair. Even when I go to ride, if I turn my head suddenly and surprise it, there's that smell. Such a peculiar odor, too. I have spent hours in trying to analyze it to find what it smelled like. It is not bad at first and very gentle, but quite the subtlest, most enduring odor I ever met. In this damp weather, it is awful. I wake up in the night and find it hanging over me. It used to disturb me at first. I thought seriously of burning the house to reach the smell. But now I am used to it. The only thing I can think of that it is like is the color of the paper. A yellow smell. There is a very funny mark on this wall, low down near the mop board. A streak that runs round the room. It goes behind every piece of furniture except the bed. A long, straight, even smooch, as if it had been rubbed over and over. I wonder how it was done and who did it and what they did it for. Round and round and round, round and round and round. It makes me dizzy. I really have discovered something at last. Through watching so much at night, when it changes so, I have finally found out. The front pattern does move, and no wonder. The woman behind shakes it. Sometimes I think there are a great many women behind, and sometimes only one, and she crawls around fast, and her crawling shakes it all over. Then... In the very bright spots, she keeps still, and in the very shady spots, she just takes hold of the bars and shakes them hard. And she is all the time trying to climb through, but nobody could climb through that pattern. It strangles so. I think that is why it has so many heads. They get through, and then the pattern strangles them off and turns them upside down and makes their eyes white. If those heads were covered or taken off, it would not be half so bad. I think that woman gets out in the daytime. And I'll tell you why, privately. I've seen her. I can see her out every one of my windows. It is the same woman I know, for she is always creeping 
and most women do not creep by daylight. I see her on that long shaded lane, creeping up and down. I see her in those dark grape arbors, creeping all around the garden. I see her on that long road under the trees, creeping along. And when a carriage comes, she hides under the blackberry vines. I don't blame her a bit. It must be very humiliating to be caught creeping by daylight. I always lock the door when I creep by daylight. I can't do it at night, for I know John would suspect something at once. And John is so queer now that I don't want to irritate him. I wish he would take another room. Besides, I don't want anybody to get that woman out at night but myself. I often wonder if I could see her out of all the windows at once. But, turn as fast as I can, I can only see her out of one at one time. And though I always see her, she may be able to creep faster than I can turn. I have watched her sometimes away off in the open country, creeping as fast as a cloud shadow in a high wind. If only that top pattern could be gotten off from the under one, I mean to try it, little by little. I have found out another funny thing, but I shan't tell it at this time. It does not do to trust people too much. There are only two more days to get this paper off, and I believe John is beginning to notice. I don't like the look in his eyes. And I heard him ask Jenny a lot of professional questions about me. She had a very good report to give. She said, I slept a good deal in the daytime. John knows I don't sleep very well at night, for all I'm so quiet. He asked me all sorts of questions, too, and pretended to be very loving and kind, as if I couldn't see through him. Still, I don't wonder he acts so, sleeping under this paper for three months. It only interests me, but I feel sure John and Jenny are secretly affected by it. Hurrah, this is the last day, but it is enough. John is to stay in town overnight and won't be out until this evening. Jenny wanted to sleep with me, the sly thing, but I told her I should undoubtedly rest better for a night all alone. That was clever, for really I wasn't alone a bit. As soon as it was moonlight and that poor thing began to crawl and shake the pattern, I got up and ran to help her. I pulled, and she shook, I shook, and she pulled, and before morning we had peeled off yards of that paper, a strip about as high as my head and half around the room. And then, when the sun came and that awful pattern began to laugh at me, I declared I would finish it today. We go away tomorrow, and they are moving all my furniture down again to leave things as they were before. Jenny looked at the wall in amazement but I told her merrily that I did it out of pure spite at the vicious thing. She laughed and said she wouldn't mind doing it herself, but I must not get tired. How she betrayed herself that time, but I am here, and no person touches this paper but me, not alive. She tried to get me out of the room. It was too patent, but I said it was so quiet and empty and clean now that I believed I would lie down again and sleep all I could, and not to wake me even for dinner. I would call when I woke. 
So now she is gone, and the servants are gone, and the things are gone, and there is nothing left but that great bedstead nailed down with the canvas mattress we found on it. We shall sleep downstairs tonight and take the boat home tomorrow. I quite enjoy the room. Now it is bare again. How those children did tear about here. This bedstead is fairly gnawed. But I must get to work. I have locked the door and thrown the key down into the front path. I don't want to go out, and I don't want to have anybody come in till John comes. I want to astonish him. I've got a rope up here that even Jenny did not find. If that woman does get out and tries to get away, I can tie her. But I forgot. I could not reach far without anything to stand on. This bed will not move. I tried to lift and push it until I was lame, and then I got so angry I bit off a little piece at one corner. But it hurt my teeth. Then I peeled off all the paper I could reach standing on the floor. It sticks horribly, and the pattern just enjoys it. All those strangled heads and bulbous eyes and waddling fungus growths just shriek with derision. I am getting angry enough to do something desperate. To jump out of the window would be an admirable exercise, but the bars are too strong even to try. Besides, I wouldn't do it. Of course not. I know well enough that a step like that is improper and might be misconstrued. I don't like to look out of the windows even. There are so many of those creeping women, and they creep so fast. I wonder if they all come out of that wallpaper as I did. But I am securely fastened now by my well-hidden rope. You don't get me out in the road there. I suppose I shall have to get back behind the pattern when it comes night, and that is hard. It is so pleasant to be out in this great room and creep around as I please. I don't want to go outside. I won't, even if Jenny asks me to. For outside you have to creep on the ground, and everything is green instead of yellow. But here I can creep smoothly on the floor, and my shoulder just fits in that long smooch around the wall, so I cannot lose my way. Why, there's John at the door. It's no use, young man. You can't open it. How he does call and pound. Now he's crying for an axe. It would be a shame to break down that beautiful door. John, dear, said I in the gentlest voice, the key is down by the front steps under a plantain leaf. That silenced him for a few moments. Then he said, very quietly indeed, Open the door, my darling. I can't, said I. The key is down by the front door under a plantain leaf. And then I said it again, several times, very gently and slowly, and said it so often that he had to go and see. And he got it, of course, and came in. He stopped short by the door. What is the matter? he cried. For God's sake, what are you doing? I kept on creeping just the same, but I looked at him over my shoulder. I've got out at last, said I, in spite of you and Jane, and I've pulled off most of the paper, so you can't put me back. Now why should that man have fainted? But he did. And right across my path by the wall, so that I had to creep over him every time.
Okay, we're back. So, Evie, when did you first yes. read this story? You Did you read it before the uh, Machado online conversation put you in mind of it? Is it something that you had read in college or anything like that? Jack, I had read this story in college early in my uh, college career. And um, hmm. the reason I asked the reader to if you recall, to follow the narrator is because when I went into reading it, I was, I'm not sure that I understood where the story was going to lead me. Mm -hmm. And I think the revelation at the end of where I yes. was when I woke up in the story was very shocking and startling. And I, and I wanted your readers to, to have that. So yes, it was, uh, yeah, it was a book in college, and I have to say, the short story was one of the most powerful literary experiences I had had since reading *The Heart of Darkness*. Mm, right. Yeah, that's a good comparison, and it it is the kind of thing. I mean, I'm usually kind of casual about spoilers on this show because <laughs> so many of these things, like *The Great Gatsby* or something, and I sort of assume familiarity with a lot of these books, and that. Read, listeners are coming to it having read the book already. This is one in particular. Mm -hmm. It really is unfortunate if it's been spoiled. And mm -hmm. I, I'm afraid that it probably does get kind of spoiled for a lot of people because it's so discussed in terms of, you know, almost like a college course or an essays mm -hmm. about the story. It's so, uh, I read it. And I knew it was kind of its role, but I didn't know much about the story. And it was such a powerful read because it is, it starts out almost like a ghost story. And you really are in sort of a, almost an Edgar Allan Poe type world. And the Gothic elements are very strong. And it does, uh, it doesn't read like an essay unless you're looking for it that way. You know, if you're yeah. if you're aware that, like, let's say you're assigned it and you read a couple of essays about it and then you read the story and then you write a paper on it. And the whole time you're reading the story, you're thinking about the paper you're going to write. It's a it, it might take away from the effect of it just as a work of fiction. Right. I, I agree. I think that there is so much emotion, uh, terror to be found if you are able to read it without any preconceived notions. Mm -hmm. And if you trust the narrator who, you know, many would say is an unreliable narrator. And when you, when you have a story and the narrator is unreliable, you know, it could take you on a, on a fantastic journey. But when you go into a story where you know that you can't trust who's telling you that story. You know, you look at the uh, narrator and the story with a jaundiced eye, and I think you really miss out on on something that could be amazing. And and for people who, you know, had the yellow wallpaper sort of sort of fed to them with an idea of what it would be about, hopefully they got some of the um, the strength of 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 her writing, Perkins's writing, but. Perkis Gilman's writing, but if, if you haven't, um, I'm, I'm sure you got 
you know, something. It's it's quite it's quite a powerful story. And and it's even powerful as if I've read it multiple times. Do you read her as an unreliable narrator? <sighs> yes. As after the fact. Before the fact <laughs> I was I was racing alongside her, holding her hand, yeah. looking at this wallpaper, trying to decipher it through my mind's eye. Right. And and quite and quite frankly, like she talked about in the story, like I've been there. If I see an intricate pattern, I'll follow it if yes. there's nothing else going on. But but I guess I see her as unreliable in the sense that, you know, I wake up at the end of the story feeling like I'm in, I'm in the head of a mad woman. Right. <laughs> I trusted right. her. And, and I wake up and I'm like, oh my God, where, where have we just, where have we been for the right. last few minutes? Right. So we would, but, but to, to save this story uh, from <laughs> just being an unreliable narrator, I think that has the, the, the implication here is that she's been driven to this. Right, that it's no. I uh, she didn't yeah, I uh, come into this insane, but that she's what she's recounting gives us the keys to why she's been driven to this madness. Yeah, no, I agree with you. So I guess let me clarify. I think that the narrator is a woman who who has uh, had a baby mm-hmm. and. Even though the official diagnosis is not in the story, it sounds like she's experiencing postpartum depression. Yes, and, which uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman also had suffered from. I'm not sure if it was ever diagnosed, yeah. but it's it's since become uh, pretty apparent that that's what she had suffered from. She had recently had a baby herself. Mm-hmm. And, and then she was prescribed a form of treatment, mm-hmm. and that treatment was rest a rest cure yeah yes and and because of that she was unable to uh do what i think she was compelled to do or she was unable to do it with freedom which is to write which is to stimulate her senses and and i and i think that because she was unable to have freedom of movement agency she she was driven mad. Mm-hmm. So that is fair. Um, and I guess I called it an unreliable narrator. It's because I don't think I knew that she was being driven mad. I was, right. I feel as a reader, I, you know, I'm not mad, but, you know, I was along for the ride and, and I looked up and, and I was like, I was trying to follow her and, and at some point, I I got to a point where I realized, you know, I'm not sure if I should be following this this narrator, this woman. <laughs> right, right. There was a a critic had this great summary. Um, I wish I had his name, but it he had said, quite apart from its origins, it is one of the finest and strongest tales of horror ever written. It may be a ghost story. Worse yet, it may not which I thought was a really good way of putting it, that basically, I mean, uh, I would say that she's unreliable for me in the sense that I don't actually believe uh, that she came out of the wallpaper, for example, or that there really was a woman in there who was shaking the wallpaper. I think that's in the narrator's eyes. Um, but on the other hand, 
I feel like my sympathies are all with her. I think I think mm-hmm. it's this rest cure and the way that it's taken away from her uh, her ability to work, her ability to write, and basically told her to lie down and rest when that's the opposite of what she needed, which is what has um, basically twisted her brain in this vice and just kept twisting and twisting until finally the outlet or the release was to start seeing things and start imagining things. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I concur. Ah, uh, okay. So here's a question that's interesting. I mean, I felt like it was very natural for me to have that reading. I don't think it would have been that natural at the time that this was written to have that reading. And that's one of the things that I think Charlotte Perkins Gilman deserves so much credit for, that this is, you know, although it might be natural for us today to say, well, if you cut off people's creativity, you tell them they can't work, you take away, you know, you tell them they just have to sit there and be quiet. Of course, you're going to have these repercussions, or of course, they're going to find some other outlet. Um, But I don't think she was surrounded by people who thought that. And I, I don't think the narrator was either. And I think that really makes this um, all the more dramatic of a story. And I'm wondering what you think, if one way of getting at this question is to ask, do you think her husband, John, was well-intentioned? I, as much as it pains me, I do think that he believed in the, he was a physician, and mm-hmm. I think contemporaries at that time prescribed yeah. the rescuer for the symptoms that she was exhibiting. Yeah. So I, 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 I have to think that he was well-intentioned. And her brother, um, her brother had the same, uh, the same, he was a physician as well. And he said the same thing, mm-hmm. right? That right. this is, you're, you're, you're a nervous person. You're slightly hysterical. You've got these tendencies, uh, we need mm-hmm. to make sure you lie in bed and, and don't work and, and basically almost don't think. So, so I, so, but I want to uh, ask you to pause for one second. And, and I'd like to note that despite, you know, her husband's and her brother's intentions being for, in their minds, in her best interest, I have to say that, you know, to the extent that either of those men in her life loved her it would have been nice if they trusted her and listened Mm, to her because she was telling them what she needed she was telling them what she wanted and and i think her character she she was you know acknowledging readily that you know she wasn't doing well she wasn't doing well Mm -hmm. um and and their prescription for helping her feel feel better was not only to deny that she was sick and unwell, but was to, you know, basically lock her up in a room with bars. And I think that, um, you know, there is a saying, a common saying, you're going to get it. It's at the tip of my tongue, but, you know, well intentions often lead to a path of destruction or something or other. And Mm. I think that's what I'm here. Yeah. So, So I don't want to, while I acknowledge that they were well-intentioned, but I think that, you know, they could have been better and, and actually listened to the woman in their lives. Yeah. And there's a woman also 
Uh, Jenny, yeah. I when I read the story this time, I really saw the struggle as being, uh, is this narrator going to be able to keep her sanity, ironically, by uh, insisting that she is okay or, or that things are not okay, that this rest cure is not working? Uh, and I mm-hmm. saw... You know, the the dilemma and the struggle seemed to be whether she was going to internalize this advice and basically say, I'm not getting better, but I know that, you know, my husband knows best and he wants the best for me. So I'm just going to pretend like everything's okay, and I'm just going to go along with what he and my brother and, and Jenny all say that I should do and basically just set aside her own awareness that things were not okay and that that to me was sort of the the tragedy or the the potential tragedy here is that she might give in to what they're saying and it it almost seemed like the wallpaper then was kind of her one ally you know her (laughs) it was kind of ironic but it was sort of the more the wallpaper seemed to take on this this crazy life of its own the more it seemed to me like a sign that she, the narrator, was not giving in and that she was saying, Mm -hmm. this is this is not okay. This rest cure is not working for me. And so Mm -hmm. the wallpaper seemed like the the only one that was on her side in a strange way. Right. I you know, I agree with you. I think that this woman was truly experiencing an authentic mental breakdown Mm -hmm. and who found her ally where she could mm-hmm. in her own creativity. Yep. I think that had she been able to, had she been in her right mind, what she could have done was, you know, put up a facade. Right. And say, hey, I am better. This rescue is working. And, and then go out and creep, you know, creep yeah. out and find something that would truly help her with her uh, condition. But unfortunately, she was unable to do that. And and I think what the wallpaper represents is her attempt to find some solace, to find, uh, you know, cure or help. And, and, and I think, you know, it was sort of a, you know, a metaphor, maybe the the wallpaper was her and, mm. and she was mm-hmm. out of it. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I mean, ultimately I think I do agree to you that she was truly experiencing a, a psychotic breakdown. And, yeah. and that was the only outlet aside from her writing to us. Right. So I want to talk about your, uh, what you've just kind of posited because I had uh, something in mind I wanted to bring up just to kind of do a quick compare and contrast. And that is the other day I watched with my boys, the movie Footloose. Mm -hmm. And I was struck by all of the parallels. And this is kind of what I mean when I say we've kind of absorbed all of these themes and they've become almost second nature to us. But if you remember the story Footloose, it's this town where it's a dry County. They don't allow uh, dancing is the, they've banned dancing. And they did it because Mm -hmm. there were some teenagers who had gotten in a car accident a few years ago. And so this town minister is kind of leading the charge on how dancing corrupts the 
the morals and the souls of young people and leads to all of these uh, negative things. And the <laughs> biggest problem that he has is with his daughter, who is basically re rebellious and is looking for a kind of outlet and is trying to circumvent these rules and is basically straining under the pressure of being the minister's daughter and just of being a teenager in this town where dancing is not allowed. You know, on the one hand, I was really struck by the similarities with the yellow wallpaper because the minister does seem to have her best interests at heart. He clearly loves her and he's he wants uh, the best for his daughter and he's trying to do the best thing that he knows how to do for this town. But on the other hand, it's like you're saying, if he would only listen to his daughter and listen to the people around him and listen to the women around him, uh, they would be a lot better off. And actually what he's doing by saying you need to act a certain way and you need to cut certain things out of your life, uh, he's actually making things worse. He's he's ratcheting up the pressure and they're looking for an outlet and it's finding itself in a lot of more troubling activities. Mm -hmm. So that all seemed like, oh, interesting. You know, we sort of have the yellow wallpaper. It's interesting that it's a father. You know, as I was reading this, it seemed very uh, intimate that it's in the, the marital relationship or it's the relationship with her brother. It's people who are really close to you, but telling you they know best. It's not some strange doctor or some mm -hmm. cult figure that you're following, but the people who have your best interests in mind are telling you this almost like a gaslighting situation. But Mm -hmm. What it what struck me about Footloose that would be different for the narrator of the yellow wallpaper is in Footloose, they know that the next town over, the teenagers get to dance. You know, they know that this is their town is the anomaly. Their town is the the unusual one that has this prohibition. And so it's easy for the daughter to say, my dad is off the rails. I can I know that I'm right because every other teenager in America gets to dance and that's just part of growing up. And for the narrator here, you know, where would she go if she if she went and, and tried to find a friend or looked for someone who would allow her to write? Chances are whoever she would find would say, what are you doing? You're a mother. Why Why are you here writing poetry? You know, why are you sitting here in this? in this restaurant or this this uh, church or, you know, wherever she would find as sort of a safe space, they would probably send her back and say, you don't understand. You you have a nervous disposition. You have a, you know, it was the whole culture of medicine and, and everyone living at the time was was not an ally. You know, the narrator was alone, which seems... Uh, right just kind of chilling and, and makes me grateful for people like Charlotte Perkins Gilman who would, you know, recognize this and be brave enough to write about it and and be able to get it in a into fiction in a way that it would influence some people and start to change some minds and, and make some changes to society so we can move forward. Mm -hmm. So, Jack, what I would say to that is that one of the things that I, I say constantly to people who <laughs> who actually listen to me because sometimes they like to hear what I say and sometimes they don't. But, you know, <laughs> I think that <laughs> we as a human species are the same today as we were mm. in 
1892 when this story was written. Yeah. Uh, we have cooler toys, uh, you know, more technological advancements, but, but as a practical matter, we are humans and we think and we're selfish and, you know, a lot of people will disagree with me, but we just happen to be, I believe that we happen to be an animal with a pretty sophisticated way of thinking and a big brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that, and what that leads me to believe is that while there has been a patriarchy in place, we've lived in a patriarchal society for a really long time on the margins and, the, you know, within that, ruling class even during this time period there were people who were resistant and not uh had not succumbed to what the patriarchy's plans and thoughts were and and i think those people not only are represented in this story by the narrator but possibly by cousin henry and julia Mm. right Mm -hmm. um she wants to go visit them Yes, and he says he would as soon as put fireworks in her pillow. Right. So I'm imagining those yep. would have been, and they were her allies, and and she she possibly did have a core group of people. Um, it, obviously not her brother, but I mean the idea that this woman is a writer, you know, mm-hmm. back then and, and felt comfortable writing and knew writing was an outlet for her and. You know, she also had a pretty sophisticated appreciation for uh, architecture, which mm-hmm. she talks about. So I'm imagining that there was a, a possibly small class of people who were supporters of her. Um, and, and she might have had access to them had she not went on this fantastical trip to the the attic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and even though uh I don't want to minimize by comparing it with Footloose minimize the potential for this happening today. I mean, I I feel like where this is I, I feel I feel like what she's clearly doing is condemning the 19th century medicine and the rest cure and the idea that this was going to be helping people when actually in her experience it was harming people and mm-hmm. i you know i think we've moved beyond the rest cure and i think the medical profession is i'd be surprised to hear that uh you know someone was prescribing it in this particular way uh but on the other hand you can totally see a similar situation developing within someone's family of Mm-hmm. You know, a, a father telling a, a daughter that she shouldn't waste her time with acting or dancing or writing or any kind of creative outlet that she should instead be doing something that's more practical or more, um, you know, womanly or something like that. You could you could see a husband doing it with a a wife or you could see a lot of, you know, it's like. We don't know what happens behind these closed doors and the dynamics that go mm-hmm. on. And you could see where a seemingly well-intentioned person who uh, has the individual's best interests in mind or seems to can also mm-hmm. still be creating this kind of dynamic where it's destructive to someone's personality. 
Right. No, I, so I just, I would just make two notes about today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have one, you know, mental illness. There's still a stigma yeah. around people seeking mental health care, um, even around postpartum depression. I think mm, that, you know, yeah. women who experience that, it's a, it's a trauma to, to have. <laughs> I read today a short story in uh, a book of short stories by Roxanne Gay mm-hmm. called Women. And in this short story, she talks about having a child. Uh, she was all prepared to have a, a female child, but she had a male child. And I, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but she was looking at her child trying to feel this, this feeling that everybody says you're supposed to yes. feel yep. to be made whole. And she never feels it. And so there is this mythology about, you know, mental health and childbearing and child rearing that is not true for every woman. And it might not be true for most women, but for fear of being shamed, people probably don't talk about it. Yeah. Oh, um, it's such a <laughs> postpartum depression is such an insidious, uh, you know, the, the way like, Everything in society is designed around the mother-child relationship and the beauty of it and the bond and all of the, you know, the joy and the happiness. And the idea that uh, for some women, they go through this period where it's not that way. And the way that society, it's, it's like it's, it's so poorly equipped to recognize or acknowledge that, that it, it might be a natural feeling. And instead, like you said, it's shame. It's, it's, well, don't you love your kid? And don't you, well, you should be the happiest person in the world. Look at this beautiful baby. And, oh, if I were you, I'd be so happy. And, you know, all of that, um, it's, it's almost designed to exacerbate the condition or, or just to make a woman feel like she's going crazy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh. And, and, it, and it puts her in a position where she can't find help. There's yeah. a stigma that's still here today. Uh, so and, I, and I said there were two points. Oh, yeah. And I okay. want to make the second point, and we don't have to talk about it, but I, for people who are listening intently, and they were promised the second point, I just want to say <laughs> it. Uh, in 2018, and at the time of the recording, it's still 2018. But there were congressional hearings, and and at one of the congressional hearings, I can't recall the senator who asked the question, but she asked the Supreme Court, no, it was to a congressperson, I can't remember, but it wasn't to a potential nominee, but, or a nominee, it was, are there any laws that regulate a male's body? Mm, Yes. and the and the person answering the question couldn't think of one, but I think you right. know you could, uh, you know, off the top of your head, name a number of laws that regulate women's bodies. So I I would just say that uh, to your original question, I think the analogy to Footloose is apt, and I would also say that it continues to be the case that uh, you know, there's a lot of concern 
with women and what we do with our bodies. And while the times have changed and, and minds have changed and medical technology has been improved upon, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it takes a while for culture to catch up. And I'm not certain that culture has completely caught up with uh, where Perkins Gilman is. Right. Even at the, in the time she wrote the story. Yeah. I mean, I say that it's 19th century medicine. It it strikes me that the rest cure was probably less of a medical phenomenon than a, a social or a cultural one anyway. Uh, you know, that mm -hmm. it was probably, it came out of a lot of physicians, you know, attitudes and and uh, misunderstandings and and all the the prejudices that they were bringing to their analyses. Uh, and it does strike me that even if, even if we might say that 21st century medicine has improved in this sense, that's not to say that politicians and policymakers have necessarily advanced and that we still might see, like you said, people who are making decisions that they think are for the best thing for women. But, you know, just like John in the story, a lot of it is infantilizing. Mm -hmm. He's he's very tender, but he's saying things like, oh, you poor little girl, you know, which mm -hmm. uh, most of us have learned uh, is a very offensive way to say things. And it, it's a it's another destructive thing. But it's it's very revealing about your attitude toward women to say things like poor baby and oh, you you just need to stop worrying your pretty little head about this and. And that kind of thing. But that is kind of, we hear those sorts of attitudes coming through in the legislation and the policies that are being made. Mm -hmm. Yep. Ah, so that kind of brings to mind, when I, when I opened up this story this time around, I was kind of excited thinking, you know, there are going to be a lot of Me Too parallels here. I, I, I think it will have some interesting discussion of the Me Too movement and how it does or, or does not reflect the themes in the yellow wallpaper. And I kind of came away from it thinking it wasn't a great fit, actually, that there was, I, I felt like, I don't know if this is the way you felt too, but I, I felt like on the one hand, I could see some, some similarities, especially in the gaslighting aspects of this, of the, well, you must be crazy, or you're all alone, everybody else is willing to go along with this and look the other way, and, and you're the one who's going to be in trouble if you try to resist or try to, to stand out, try to speak out. But on the other hand, mm -hmm. I really felt like, you know, this really, uh, it's not really a workplace harassment story or a sexual harassment story. It really is more about the the intimacy of a close relationship where a person who's very close to you is basically telling you that they know what's best for you and that it's <laughs> it's more about uh, preventing people from doing the things that they want to do, which I guess is, is an aspect of Me Too. But Me Too seems to me more like about interactions with strangers rather than interactions with uh, the the husbands or the brothers or the people who are closest to you. Are you with me on that with me too? Yeah, I am with you. I I thought about the analogy and I agree. It's not, there is not, I don't think there are enough parallels between the current Me Too movement and what she was struggling with mm -hmm. at this time. 
But I will say, I think it it is helpful or it might be helpful to think about how, uh, about the results. So obviously this woman, the narrator, was attempting to communicate something. Uh, she, and actually let's take it out of the story, talk about the author. Mm-hmm. She thought that there was a problem with this rescuer. She wanted to uh, inform the doctor who was who had prescribed to her that she didn't think it was helpful. And in fact, she thought it was driving her mad. Mm-hmm. Um, and she apparently she it wasn't enough that she said that to him, maybe even the people in her life. So she wrote this story and and in sort of the 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 tapes that I read, she sent it to him and there were uh, various uh, theories on the result on one and, and one on one hand, I heard that as a result of reading her account of how the rescue affected her, he had stopped prescribing it on another. I heard that he had continued to prescribe it years later, but mm. in any event, she never got a direct response from him. Right. Both accounts said that. So, so to me, it's that she 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 had a, an opinion. She wanted to share her opinion with the doctor, at least, and, and perhaps the world, but she wasn't listened to. And I think that's what women in the Me Too era are facing a similar result. They are they have an opinion about what's happening in the workplace, and some people are listening. And there are huge repercussions, I think, in the entertainment world, in the literary world, even in you know Broadway and in various orchestras. And then there are maybe some in, po- in the political sphere. You know, I think that's still yet to be told. But women are speaking, and and, and I think it's apparent that they're still not always being listened to. And I and I get that there are some you know issues out there where people are concerned about false accusations people are possibly making false accusations but i think at bottom at least the result of people speaking out is not always clear like perkis gilman it's not clear that she was listened to yes over Mm. time that Mm -hmm. the cure has fallen to the wayside and and now women are speaking out and it's and some there are some people who are facing repercussions but it's not always the case Right. Yeah, I do have the the sense from what I've read that she was basically recognized uh, or not recognized, but she she was in the minority of readers her whole life, that it was not the the ideas and the yellow wallpaper were kind of uh, appreciated by a small number of people at the time. And it wasn't until later that it became uh, as celebrated as it has been. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about one thing in the story, uh, and then maybe we can, I'll let you, uh, conclude with any other thoughts or anything that you want to talk about, but it's, <laughs> it's the one thing that I really don't understand. And I'm sort of, I had to develop a theory for it to explain mm-hmm. it in my mind, but it is the thing that just gives me chills. And this is a good point. If anybody has, for some reason, wants to read the story again or didn't listen or something, this is really going to spoil the ending. And so uh, this would be a good time to pause the podcast and go check out the story if that's what you're, if that's where you are with it. But basically, it's almost at the end. She's 
she's sort of in full madness now. And she says, uh, I've locked the door and thrown the key down the front path. I don't want to go out and don't want to have anybody come in until John comes. I want to astonish him. And then she says, I've got a rope up here that even Jenny did not find. If that woman does get out, she means the woman in the wallpaper. If that woman does get out and tries to get away, I can tie her. Mm-hmm. What did you make of that line? So before I tell you what I made of it, can I hear what you came up with? <laughs> um, I thought of it, I mean, this whole time she's been struggling with, do I do I give in? Do I not give in? Uh, I talked about this before, that it's it's this struggle she has to keep her sanity or to slip into a madness that actually might be more sane because it's more realistic, right? That it's the mm-hmm. the uh, the sanity of saying that the rest cure is not working. And mm-hmm. I kind of viewed it as here she's she's slipping between what she should be doing from society's perspective and what she really thinks. And if the woman in the wallpaper is her, or if it's a reflection of her, or if it's an ally of hers, or if it is sort of more like a ghost, and that it's basically sort of the pinnacle of her confusion or her, you know, the difficulties that the war that's going on within her mind, that at one point Mm -hmm. she actually thinks, well, if, if this is a woman who jumps out of the wallpaper, it would be my job to tie her up and keep her here. Mm-hmm. So, Jack. Yeah. I have two views of, okay. of this ending um, of the story. So, the first view, which is the one I I mostly believe in, is that at some point you got to jump off this narrator's train and yeah. let it go. <laughs> I think she's completely irrational yeah. and. The more you try to rationalize the irrational, you'll just twist in the wind. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the point here is the that one... the author is saying, here's what it's like to be in the mind of a mad woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the more you follow me, you will, you are, you are in the middle of madness. You're experiencing madness. Yep. So I think, you know, I think that's where we are. Yeah. Uh, so that's my one take. And I think that's, that's what I believe. That's why, you know, I think that it's fun, but at some point you have to stop trying to rationalize it. Well, it, it seems it's, like, um, you know, all the themes that, that we go through uh, are kind of in the middle and the very beginning mm-hmm. and the very end are like a ghost story. They're, they're Edgar Allan Poe territory. And so mm-hmm. I think you're probably right that at this point, is yeah. where we start the slide into the uh, just the sheer creepiness, which is mm-hmm. interesting word since that's got such a an importance in this story, the creeping and the creep. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does; it's just a hair raising. Uh, it's sort of a, a frightening beginning, but a totally hair raising end. Yes, yes. Um, I felt chills, and I feel chills. And I read it still. And then I guess the other, my other take is that, you know, my rationalization of what is irrational is that she 
the woman is the wallpaper is a reflection of who she is. That's her. She she feels trapped. She's literally trapped in a room. She's trapped in this old home. Mm-hmm. She's trapped in a marriage. She's infanticized, like you said. She she can't she can't make a decision without being overruled. Mm-hmm. She wants to stay in another room, but they're forcing her to stay in this room. Yeah. And so, and, and this actually, my answer goes back to, to something you brought up earlier is that, you know, if she is able to convince her husband, convince Jenny that she is cured, that she's cured in her body, perhaps she can, you know, break free and, and see her cousin and, and, and have some semblance of mental freedom. Uh, and so maybe perhaps the rope is a tether to keep mm. herself sane, to, to tie, to, to train, chain her own or to restrain her own mental, uh, yeah. you know, energies and, and to keep them cabins so that when she sees, her husband she's able to convince him hey it's all nothing to see here yeah (laughs) it's such a i mean that and just the way you describe that it just made me think sort of the the key conceit of the story she's trapped in so many different ways she's trapped by marriage she's trapped by the the prescription for her she's trapped by motherhood and the way that it's uh affecting her and the only thing she can do if she were to if she were to identify these things as being her her jailers you know her new baby Mm -hmm. her loving husband uh her brother you know if those were the things it's almost sounds monstrous and so instead Mm -hmm. she's she's projected it all onto this wallpaper as this is the this is the thing that bothers me this is the thing that bothers me about this room when actually what we know from the story is pretty clear to the readers is it's it's not the wallpaper it's i mean it might be bad wallpaper but really what's happening here is uh she has been given no agency and she's being overruled at every turn and and she's um she's trapped by everything else that uh mm-hmm. you know is is what's leading to her attitude toward this wallpaper and the way the wallpaper comes to represent something for her. Uh, any other thoughts before I wrap things up here? I guess I would just like to say thank you so much, uh, Jack, for having me on the show. And I would encourage people who love literature to to not be afraid of this type of literature mm. uh, because it's you know, it's labeled feminism and, and, and people, it's a political term. And I think that yeah. there's a powerful story to be told here. Yes. Uh, you and I just talked a lot about it, but there's also just the pure joy of hearing a really good story. Yeah. And this is a really good story. Yep. This is the most, you said it earlier, hair raising, powerful, creepy, horrific stories I've ever read. And while there is a stronger and there is another message behind that first layer, like that first layer should be appreciated. So don't be afraid of reading literature that is so-called feminist literature because mm-hmm. love, love, love literature. Like you are missing out on something if you you know disregard a whole genre right. because of 
There's when something when something beloved is another good example of this. When something appears this often on syllabi and as um, you know in anthologies and things that get assigned in high schools and colleges and there's a sort of feeling that oh it must be like medicine you know it must be mm-hmm. um must be something i'm supposed to read because it's good for me but it's probably very boring and this in particular i mean that might be true for certain books but this story in particular is such a wild ride and such a fun and fast read that it is definitely uh uh should go on the list of things to experience if you haven't, but I guess people now have at least heard it. Uh, so, you know, it occurs to me, we could have done this for Halloween, but I'm kind of happy to have it here as a New Year's episode because we have this new guest, Evie. I hope you'll come back for another visit. Yes, I would love to be back, Jeff. And the other thing is, the New Year is the time to make resolutions, and all the resolutions that I make and I suspect that most people make is really just trying to become a better person in some way, someone who exercises more or who eats better or who treats others better. And if you're someone who's in chains, metaphorically, this is the year to break out. And if you're someone who keeps other people down, this is your year to let them free. So let's recognize the greatness in ourselves and push that forward. And let's also do whatever we can to allow greatness to flourish in others, even if that seems like a sacrifice to us. Does that sound good? That sounds excellent. Okay, let's leave things there. Happy New Year, Evie, and thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you, Jack. Happy New Year to you, too. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to the Vice President, Ms. Evie Lee, for joining us, and to Ms. Charlotte Perkins Gilman, author extraordinaire. Who? Extraordinaire. Did I say that right? Author extraordinaire. Who brought us this miraculous short story. A life full of pain, but a posthumous life of literary glory. Hers is quite a story. I'm glad you're here with us here in 2019. We have a lot of exciting episodes in the works. I can't wait to share them all with you. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. (music) ¶¶